Chapters 45 and 46 of The Way of All Flesh. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Rhonda Fetterman. The Way of All Flesh by Samuel Butler. Chapter 45. Some people say that their school days were the happiest of their lives. They may be right, but I always look with suspicion upon those whom I hear saying this. It is hard enough to know whether one is happy or unhappy now, and still harder to compare the relative happiness or unhappiness of different times of one's life. The utmost that can be said is that we are fairly happy so long as we are not distinctly aware of being miserable. As I was talking with Ernest one day, not so long since, about this, he said he was so happy now that he was sure he had never been happier, and did not wish to be so, but that Cambridge was the first place where he had ever been consciously and continuously happy. How could any boy fail to feel an ecstasy of pleasure on first finding himself in rooms which he knows for the next few years are to be his castle? Here he will not be compelled to turn out of the most comfortable place as soon as he has ensconced himself in it, because Papa or Mama happens to come into the room, and he should give it up to them. The most cosy chair here is for himself. There is no one even to share the room with him, or to interfere with his doing as he likes in it, smoking included. Why, if such a room looked out both back and front onto a blank dead wall, it would still be a paradise. How much more, then, when the view is of some quiet grassy court or cloister or garden, as from the windows of the greater number of rooms at Oxford and Cambridge? Theobald, as an old fellow and tutor of Emmanuel, at which college he had entered Ernest, was able to obtain from the present tutor a certain preference in the choice of rooms. Ernest's, therefore, were very pleasant ones, looking out upon the grassy court that is bounded by the fellow's gardens. Theobald accompanied him to Cambridge, and was at his best while doing so. He liked the jaunt, and even he was not without a certain feeling of pride in having a full-blown son at the university. Some of the reflected rays of this splendor were allowed to fall upon Ernest himself. Theobald said he was willing to hope, this was one of his tags, that his son would turn over a new leaf now that he had left school, and for his own part he was only too ready, this was another tag, to let bygones be bygones. Ernest, not yet having his name on the books, was able to dine with his father at the fellow's table of one of the other colleges on the invitation of an old friend of Theobald's. He there made acquaintance with sundry of the good things of this life, the very names of which were new to him, and felt as he ate them that he was now indeed receiving a liberal education. When at length the time came for him to go to Emmanuel, where he was to sleep in his new rooms, his father came with him to the gates and saw him safe into college. A few minutes more, and he found himself alone in a room for which he had a latch-key. From this time he dated many days which, if not quite unclouded, 
were upon the whole very happy ones. I need not, however, describe them, as the life of a quiet, steady-going undergraduate has been told in a score of novels better than I can tell it. Some of Ernest's schoolfellows came up to Cambridge at the same time as himself, and with these he continued on friendly terms during the whole of his college career. Other schoolfellows were only a year or two his seniors. These called on him, and he thus made a sufficiently favorable entree into college life. A straightforwardness of character that was stamped upon his face, a love of humor, and a temper which was more easily appeased than ruffled, made up for some awkwardness and want of savoir-faire. He soon became a not unpopular member of the best set of his year, and though neither capable of becoming nor aspiring to become a leader, was admitted by the leaders as among their nearer hangers-on. Of ambition he had at that time not one particle. Greatness, or indeed superiority of any kind, seemed so far off and incomprehensible to him, that the idea of connecting it with himself never crossed his mind. If he could escape the notice of all those with whom he did not feel himself en rapport, he conceived that he had triumphed sufficiently. He did not care about taking a good degree, except that it must be good enough to keep his father and mother quiet. He did not dream of being able to get a fellowship. If he had, he would have tried hard to do so, for he became so fond of Cambridge that he could not bear the thought of having to leave it. The briefness, indeed, of the season during which his present happiness was to last was almost the only thing that now seriously troubled him. Having less to attend to in the matter of growing, and having got his head more free, he took to reading fairly well. Not because he liked it, but because he was told he ought to do so, and his natural instinct, like that of all very young men who are good for anything, was to do as those in authority told him. The intention at Battersby was, for Dr. Skinner had said that Ernest could never get a fellowship, that he should take a sufficiently good degree to be able to get a tutorship or mastership in some school preparatory to taking orders. When he was twenty-one years old, his money was to come into his own hands, and the best thing he could do with it would be to buy the next presentation to a living, the rector of which was now old, and live on his mastership or tutorship till the living fell in. He could buy a very good living for the sum which his grandfather's legacy now amounted to, for Theobald had never had any serious intention of making deductions for his son's maintenance and education, and the money had accumulated till it was now about five thousand pounds. He had only talked about making deductions in order to stimulate the boy to exertion as far as possible, by making him think that this was his only chance of escaping starvation or perhaps from pure love of teasing. When Ernest had a living of six hundred pounds or seven hundred pounds a year with a house and not too many parishioners, why, he might add to his income by taking pupils, or even keeping a school, and then, say at thirty, he might marry. It was not easy for Theobald to hit on any much more sensible plan. He could not get Ernest into business, for he had no business connections. Besides, he did not know what business meant. 
He had no interest, again, at the bar. Medicine was a profession which subjected its students to ordeals and temptations, which these fond parents shrank from on behalf of their boy. He would be thrown among companions and familiarized with details which might sully him, and though he might stand, it was only too possible that he would fall. Besides, ordination was the road which Theobald knew and understood, and indeed the only road about which he knew anything at all, so not unnaturally it was the one he chose for Ernest. The foregoing had been instilled into my hero from earliest boyhood, much as it had been instilled into Theobald himself, and with the same result. The conviction, namely, that he was certainly to be a clergyman, but that it was a long way off yet, and he supposed it was all right. As for the duty of reading hard, and taking as good a degree as he could, this was plain enough. So he set himself to work, as I have said, steadily, and to the surprise of everyone as well as himself, got a college scholarship, of no great value, but still a scholarship, in his freshman's term. It is hardly necessary to say that Theobald stuck to the whole of this money, believing the pocket money he allowed Ernest to be sufficient for him, and knowing how dangerous it was for young men to have money at command. I do not suppose it even occurred to him to try and remember what he had felt when his father took a like course in regard to himself. Ernest's position in this respect was much what it had been at school, except that things were on a larger scale. His tutors and cook's bills were paid for him. His father sent him his wine. Over and above this he had fifty pounds a year with which to keep himself in clothes and all other expenses. This was about the usual thing at Emmanuel in Ernest's day, though many had much less than this. Ernest did as he had done at school. He spent what he could soon after he received his money. He then incurred a few modest liabilities, and then lived penuriously till next term, when he would immediately pay his debts and start new ones to much the same extent as those which he had just got rid of. When he came into his five thousand pounds and became independent of his father, fifteen pounds or twenty pounds served to cover the whole of his unauthorized expenditure. He joined the boat club, and was constant in his attendance at the boats. He still smoked, but never took more wine or beer than was good for him, except perhaps on the occasion of a boating supper, but even then he found the consequences unpleasant, and soon learned how to keep within safe limits. He attended chapel as often as he was compelled to do so. He communicated two or three times a year, because his tutor told him he ought to, in fact, he set himself to live soberly and cleanly, as I imagine all his instincts prompted him to do. And when he fell, as who that is born of woman can help sometimes doing, it was not till after a sharp tussle with a temptation that was more than his flesh and blood could stand. Then he was very penitent, and would go a fairly long while without sinning again and this was how it had always been with him since he had arrived at years of indiscretion. Even to the end of his career at Cambridge, he was not aware that he had it in him to do anything. But others had begun to see that he was not wanting in ability, and sometimes told him so. 
he did not believe it. Indeed, he knew very well that if they thought him clever, they were being taken in. But it pleased him to have been able to take them in, and he tried to do so still further. He was therefore a good deal on the lookout for cants that he could catch and apply in season, and might have done himself some mischief thus, if he had not been ready to throw over any cant as soon as he had come across another more nearly to his fancy. His friends used to say that when he rose he flew like a snipe, darting several times in various directions before he settled down to a steady straight flight. But when he had once got into this, he would keep to it. CHAPTER 46 When he was in his third year a magazine was founded at Cambridge, the contributions to which were exclusively by undergraduates. Ernest sent in an essay upon the Greek drama, which he had declined to let me reproduce here without his being allowed to re-edit it. I have therefore been unable to give it in its original form, but when pruned of its redundancies, and this is all that has been done to it, it runs as follows. I shall not attempt within the limits at my disposal to make a resume of the rise and progress of the Greek drama but will confine myself to considering whether the reputation enjoyed by the three chief Greek tragedians, Aeschylus, Sophocles, and Euripides, is one that will be permanent, or whether they will one day be held to have been overrated. Why, I ask myself, do I see much that I could easily admire in Homer, Thucydides, Herodotus, Demosthenes, Aristophanes, Theocritus, parts of Lucretius, Horace's satires and epistles, to say nothing of other ancient writers, and yet find myself at once repelled by even those works of Aeschylus, Sophocles, and Euripides, which are most generally admired. With the first-named writers I am in the hands of men who feel, if not as I do, still as I can understand their feeling, and as I am interested to see that they should have felt. With the second I have so little sympathy that I cannot understand how anyone can ever have taken any interest in them whatever. Their highest flights to me are dull, pompous, and artificial productions, which, if they were to appear now for the first time, would, I should think, either fall dead or be severely handled by the critics. I wish to know whether it is I who am at fault in this matter, or whether part of the blame may not rest with the tragedians themselves. How far, I wonder, did the Athenians genuinely like these poets, and how far was the applause which was lavished upon them due to fashion or affectation? How far, in fact, did admiration for the orthodox tragedians take that place among the Athenians which going to church does among ourselves? This is a venturesome question, considering the verdict now generally given for over two thousand years, nor should I have permitted myself to ask it, if it had not been suggested to me by one whose reputation stands as high, and has been sanctioned for as long time as those of the tragedians themselves, I mean by Aristophanes. Numbers, weight of authority, and time have conspired to place Aristophanes on as high a literary pinnacle as any ancient writer, with the exception perhaps of Homer but he makes no secret of heartily hating Euripides and Sophocles, and I strongly suspect 
only praises Aeschylus, that he may run down the other two with greater impunity. For after all there is no such difference between Aeschylus and his successors as will render the former very good and the latter very bad. And the thrusts of Aeschylus, which Aristophanes puts into the mouth of Euripides, go home too well to have been written by an admirer. It may be observed that while Euripides accuses Aeschylus of being pomp-bundle-worded, which I suppose means bombastic and given to rhodomontade, Aeschylus retorts on Euripides that he is a gossip-gleaner, a describer of beggars, and a rag-stitcher, from which it may be inferred that he was truer to the life of his own times than Aeschylus was. It happens, however, that a faithful rendering of contemporary life is the very quality which gives it most permanent interest to any work of fiction, whether in literature or painting, and it is a not unnatural consequence that while only seven plays by Aeschylus, and the same number by Sophocles, have come down to us, we have no fewer than nineteen by Euripides. This, however, is a digression. The question before us is whether Aristophanes really liked Aeschylus, or only pretended to do so. It must be remembered that the claims of Aeschylus, Sophocles, and Euripides, to the foremost place among tragedians, were held to be as incontrovertible as those of Dante, Petrarch, Tasso, and Ariosto, to be the greatest of Italian poets, are held among the Italians of today. If we can fancy some witty, genial writer, we will say in Florence, finding himself bored by all the poets I have named, we can yet believe he would be unwilling to admit that he disliked them without exception. He would prefer to think he could see something at any rate in Dante, whom he could idealize more easily, inasmuch as he was more remote. In order to carry his countrymen the farther with him, he would endeavor to meet them more than was consistent with his own instincts. Without some such palliation as admiration for one, at any rate, of the tragedians, it would be almost as dangerous for Aristophanes to attack them as it would be for an Englishman now to say that he did not think very much of the Elizabethan dramatists. Yet which of us in his heart likes any of the Elizabethan dramatists except Shakespeare? Are they in reality anything else than literary Strolbrugs? I conclude upon the whole that Aristophanes did not like any of the tragedians. Yet no one will deny that this keen, witty, outspoken writer was as good a judge of literary value, and as able to see any beauties that the tragic dramas contained, as nine-tenths, at any rate, of ourselves. He had, moreover, the advantage of thoroughly understanding the standpoint from which the tragedians expected their work to be judged. And what was his conclusion? Briefly, it was little else than this, that they were a fraud, or something very like it. For my own part, I cordially agree with him. I am free to confess that with the exception of perhaps some of the Psalms of David, I know no writings which seem so little to deserve their reputation. I do not know that I should particularly mind my sisters reading them, but I will take good care never to read them myself. This last bit about the Psalms was awful, and there was a great fight with the editor as to whether or no it should be allowed to stand, 
Ernest himself was frightened at it, but he had once heard someone say that the Psalms were, many of them, very poor, and on looking at them more closely, after he had been told this, he found that there could hardly be two opinions on the subject. So he caught up the remark and reproduced it as his own, concluding that these Psalms had probably never been written by David at all, but had got in among the others by mistake. The essay, perhaps on account of the passage about the Psalms, created quite a sensation, and on the whole was well received. Ernest's friends praised it more highly than it deserved, and he was himself very proud of it, but he dared not show it at Battersby. He knew also that he was now at the end of his tether. This was his one idea. I felt sure he had caught more than half of it from other people. And now he had not another thing left to write about. He found himself cursed with a small reputation which seemed to him much bigger than it was, and a consciousness that he could never keep it up. Before many days were over he felt his unfortunate essay to be a white elephant to him which he must feed by hurrying into all sorts of frantic attempts to cap his triumph, and, as may be imagined, these attempts were failures. He did not understand that if he waited and listened and observed, another idea of some kind would probably occur to him some day, and that the development of this would in its turn suggest still further ones. He did not yet know that the very worst way of getting hold of ideas is to go hunting expressly after them. The way to get them is to study something of which one is fond, and to note down whatever crosses one's mind in reference to it, either during study or relaxation, in a little notebook kept always in the waistcoat pocket. Ernest had come to know all about this now, but it took him a long time to find it out for this is not the kind of thing that is taught at schools and universities. Nor yet did he know that ideas, no less than the living beings in whose minds they arise, must be begotten by parents not very unlike themselves, the most original still differing but slightly from the parents that have given rise to them. Life is like a fugue. Everything must grow out of the subject, and there must be nothing new. Nor again did he see how hard it is to say where one idea ends and another begins, nor yet how closely this is paralleled in the difficulty of saying where a life begins or ends, or an action or indeed anything, there being a unity in spite of infinite multitude, and an infinite multitude in spite of unity. He thought that ideas came into clever people's heads by a kind of spontaneous germination, without parentage in the thoughts of others or the course of observation, for as yet he believed in genius, of which he well knew that he had none, if it was the fine frenzied thing he thought it was. Not very long before this he had come of age, and Theobald had handed him over his money, which amounted now to five thousand pounds. It was invested to bring in five pounds per cent, and gave him therefore an income of two hundred and fifty pounds per year. He did not, however, realize the fact, he could realize nothing so far into his experience, that he was independent of his father till a long time afterwards. Nor did Theobald make any difference in his manner towards him. 
so strong was the hold which habit and association held over both father and son that the one considered he had as good a right as ever to dictate and the other that he had as little right as ever to gainsay during his last year at cambridge he overworked himself through this very blind deference to his father's wishes for there was no reason why he should take more than a pole degree except that his father laid such stress upon his taking honours he became so ill indeed that it was doubtful how far he would be able to go in for his degree at all but he managed to do so and when the list came out was found to be placed higher than either he or anyone else expected being among the first three or four senior optimes and a few weeks later in the lower half of the second class of the classical tripos ill as he was when he got home theobald made him go over all the examination papers with him and in fact reproduced as nearly as possible the replies that he had sent in so little kick had he in him and so deep was the groove into which he had got that while at home he spent several hours a day in continuing his classical and mathematical studies as though he had not yet taken his degree. End of chapter forty six. Recording by Rhonda Fetterman.